couple of years ago, Emily and I uh, got started on developing a strawberry patch. Never had a strawberry patch before, and so I started looking into there's, there's the June berries and the Everberries, and there's all kinds of different things. Yeah, there's different models. There's ways you can build a strawberry patch, I found. There's a, that's just the basic kind, right? Just a simple little raised bed, not too complicated to build, but you can actually get pretty elaborate with these things, I found. There you see you get, get the little kind of pyramid thing going on. There's even other more exotic ways where you can build this, like, I, I mean, I, I'm not good with cutting wood and building stuff with my hands. I don't know how you would do that, but you start looking around. These things kind of look pretty cool. There's all kinds of ways to build a strawberry patch, and, and these things actually give like a ton of fruit. Has anybody ever tried planting strawberries or built their own patch? A few of you, you know how this works. Like when those things hit their stride, you get a ton of berries out of them. But the thing that I realized is I, I was researching the different kinds of berries, the different ways to build these patches. The, the most important part of your strawberry patch by far is the kind of soil that goes into it. And that's why they want you to build it up a little bit, whether it's the simple raised bed or the, the pyramid or all this business. You're supposed to bring in, I found, uh, rotted manure. Now, catch that, not just manure. They wanted you to get rotted manure. And like this special kind of topsoil and peat moss, so you get this slightly acidic, they say like 5.5 to 6.5 on the pH scale is what you're after. I trust they actually know what they're talking about and they're not just making things up to tell me that. But somebody says like, hey, that's actually the ideal conditions for a strawberry patch. So you can do all kinds of stuff to make it look pretty on the outside, but at the end of the day, if you don't get the right mixture of soil in your strawberry patch, you're not gonna have very many strawberries. It's just not gonna work out right. And, and what I realized in that, and tying it into Mark 4, is just as the soil condition is everything for the strawberries, so the condition of our heart is everything for receiving the word of God. You can look pretty on the outside, you can get all kinds of stuff going, but it's all about the condition of your heart to receive God's word. Now, there, there's really good news to come alongside this, is that sometimes we don't feel like our heart is in a very good place. And we wonder, how, how does this happen? But the good news is that the word of God actually has great power to change our hearts. So we needn't despair if we don't like where we're at at the moment or our heart feels hard towards receiving God's word. In fact, right after what we just read in Mark 4, Mark would go on to tell of all kinds of hard-hearted people who had been changed by God's word. Mark 5, he would, Mark would talk about a demon-possessed man who was changed by God's word and then a Gentile woman who was changed by God's word. And chapter 7, he would talk about a Roman centurion who was changed by God's word. And even in chapter 12, he would go to a scribe, what we would consider a religious hypocrite. And even the religious hypocrites could be changed by God's word. So it's a really encouraging thing to look at there. And so as we, we think about this parable, here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to do two basic things. I want you to first off, identify where your heart is at. The parable gives several different conditions that your heart might be in. Identify, where's my heart at this morning? And identify at least one action step to cultivate a heart that's receptive to God's word. That would be good soil, you might say. The sermon boiled down to a sentence is this. The heart of faith receives God's word and bears much fruit. That's what we want to see. The heart of faith receives God's word and it bears much fruit. Notice what that doesn't say, though. It doesn't say this. The heart of faith looks good on the outside. No, that's not the mark of the heart of faith. In fact, we just got done walking through some parables a couple of weeks ago, the two lost sons, and the, the older brother looked really good on the outside. He worked hard, kept all the rules, stayed with dad. 
And yet his heart was not in a good place, was it? Or the following week, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the, the priest and the Levite walked down the path. On the outside, they looked pretty good. But their heart wasn't receptive to the word of God. So it's the heart of faith that receives God's word, and it, it bears much fruit. This kind of a heart, a heart of faith, is marked by active, humble dependence on God's word. Think about it. It's, it's choosing. I'm going to actively choose humble dependence on God's word. That's what this heart of faith looks like. And so before we get too deep into the passage, a little bit of background information might be helpful for us. This parable that Jesus delivered, uh, archaeologists have found an area over in the Middle East that's now known as the Bay of Parables. It's likely the bay where Jesus taught many of his parables. What it is, it's sort of a, a natural amphitheater of sorts, where you could be in the boat and just speak at a normal human voice level that could be heard easily by thousands of people. It's fairly remarkable to see how those things have been kind of pieced together. Like, wow, that's amazing. Like, I wonder, how, does, how did Jesus preach to all these thousands without, you know, a microphone on or something? And you, know, you, you start to see from what these archaeologists have uncovered, like, oh, it, it makes sense. The Bible actually is telling me the truth here. Uh, the, the, the infertile soil in, in the parable is representative of unbelievers, those who are without faith in Christ, because ultimately none of those different kinds of soil bear fruit, and the mark of a believer's life is that they do bear fruit. But even so, the Christian life is marked by continually tilling up the hard soil in your heart, and by pulling the rocks out of it, and by uprooting the weeds, so whether you're here as a, as a Christian or not as a Christian, there's a ton of application, a ton of transformational truth to be found in this little nugget, this parable. The last little piece of background info that might be helpful to think about is to ask then, how is it that the soil of our heart becomes more fertile? Right in the, in the middle there, verses 11 and 12, Jesus has some of his most difficult teachings of saying, what's going on here? Is this God's work? Is this our work? Is God sovereign over this work? Or are we responsible for it? And, and the reality is what the Bible teaches all over the place is that God is completely sovereign over all things, and we are responsible to seek him and to pursue him and to grow in him. And the human heart always wants it to be either or. Like We, we struggle with the both and, don't we? Like, come on, just tell me what to do. Like, no, God's saying, man, I'm, I'm infinite and, and you're finite in your humanity and you don't quite see the whole picture. I'm totally sovereign and you are totally responsible. One of my favorite passages on this is Philippians 2, uh, verses 12 and 13. It starts out, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, all right, you do the work. And then verse 13 says, for it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Like, what, what do you mean? Well, it's both. God is sovereign and he's doing the work and you work at it too. Or Psalm 119, verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Well, it's God's word that does all this. Okay, but then Hebrews 3 you read, and it says, well, exhort one another daily so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you do it. As you go back and forth over and over, it's like, look, God is sovereign over the work. He's going to do it. And you are responsible to work and to cultivate a heart that is full of good soil to be receptive to the gospel. I think if you would just let yourself look down in Mark 4 a little bit later, you would see this mystery put together by Jesus himself. Look back at Mark 4, verses 26 and 27, just beyond this parable, actually, and look at what Jesus says, picking up in verse 26. He says, and Jesus said, the kingdom of God as it is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. 
and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. <laughs> and was this ultimately up to me? Is it ultimately up to God? He says, look, do what I've called you to do, and I'll worry about the results. You seek me, you cultivate a humble heart of dependence, and the work will get done, and fruit will be borne out by a heart of faith that receives the word of God, and it will bear much fruit. So our, our outline this simple is pretty straightforward. I don't mean to be complicated at all. We're just going to walk through the different kinds of soil. So there's a, a hard soil, a rocky soil, thorny soil, and then good soil. That's, that's our four points. Hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, good soil. The, the hard soil uh, we see described in verse 4 and verse 15. And, and what I'll do at each point, I'll read, because you know at the beginning it talks about the soil, and then it skips down and Jesus explains it. We'll just kind of read both of those as we go through to get the whole picture. All right, so let's look at verse 4, where we're introduced to the hard soil. Mark writes, As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Dropping down to verse 15. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. The, the picture we get here is that the ground has become hard pan. It's nearly concrete. It's, it's what the ground is becoming here in Indiana, and if you would give it like another month, it would just be rock hard. There's no chance of a seed going down in that. It represents people that never really give the Bible much thought at all. I think it's, it's interesting and important that we note that social media trains us to be like hard pan ground, where I can never learn, never be taught anything, and things just kind of bounce off, and I either like it or reject it right away, and I'm never cultivating a heart that's receptive. And in an age of growing secularism, we're seeing more and more people showing outright rejection for the Bible without even hearing it. And I would like to say to you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not sure if you believe the Bible, or you're pretty confident you don't believe the Bible. Man, I love to sit down and have conversations about why I think we should trust the Bible and why it's reliable. And I think the questions you're asking of the Bible are really good questions. I would love to be able to talk about those with you. Now, you may not quite be ready for that. You, you may think, like, man, talking to a pastor feels kind of intimidating. I don't really want it to go that far. Can I just encourage you to grab a book from our bookstore? Uh, it's a, a little white book that uh, is on the table there. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's a story of Rosaria Butterfield, a professor of uh, lesbian and queer studies at Syracuse University and how she hated God and hated the Bible and kind of the thoughts that she was scared to verbalize to someone else, how God slowly brought her to see that the Bible actually was true. So, so whether you want to come and talk to me or, or kind of talk through a book with Rosaria, I would encourage you to take a step just to see can I trust the Bible? And to begin to investigate those questions a little bit more. But, but the reality is this kind of hard soil that we see in, in a secular culture isn't limited to a secular culture. I think it's more prominent, more prevalent in the church than we ever think or realize. That's why every single Sunday I begin this sermon by praying that God would give us eyes to see his word and ears to hear it and a humble heart to receive it. Because we can sit under the word of God week in, week out, and it never actually penetrates our heart. We can have a heart that's hard. It's like the hard pan, concrete sidewalk. I'm reminded of this, and it sort of humbles me sometimes when we're on the way home and I ask our kids, hey, girls, do you remember what Daddy talked about this morning? I say, oh, not really, Dad. I just want to go to Culver's. <laughs> that doesn't exactly help the preacher's ego that way. But in a lot of ways, 
You know, our, our kids are windows into where our own hearts are at. They're just willing to be honest about things that we've sort of learned to cover up. And so I wonder if that's not something you would say, man, I can tell you what you talked about, Justin. Like, I've gained some head knowledge here, but I don't know that the word of God is actually penetrating my heart. I don't know it's actually working itself out and changing me. I'd ask you this. When's the last time you told somebody how God's word is actually changing your heart? Not just you learn some kind of new information. Right? The, the word of God going into your heart is not about gaining knowledge. Deep teaching of the Bible is not like a new fact that I unveil. But if I can't tell you how God's word is changing my heart, I have to ask, is God's word actually changing my heart? Maybe this is a great conversation for you to have at the parade. You're going to the Pittsburgh parade today, the Brownsburg parade tomorrow. You're, you're going to be sitting in the lawn chair, sweating bullets like crazy. Like, man, you're going to be there for a little while? What if you just said, hey, could you share something of how God's word has been changing? Or could I tell you something about how God's word has been changing me? It'd be a great conversation to have right there. So that the word of God doesn't just bounce off your heart in the service, but it actually continues into your life beyond. I also think it's important to notice the sower sows the, ground, the, the seed and it goes on the hard ground. Now he's looking at that hard ground and it does not look at all fruitful. There seems to be no hope for it, Right? And yet he still sows there knowing that there's power in the word of God. And it's easy for us to think about people in our lives that appear kind of like that hard ground, isn't it? It just seems like they're not open to this at all. And yet the sower still sows because the power is not in his own persuasiveness, but in the word of God. So I'd encourage you, don't depend on your own persuasiveness when you share God's word, but do make sure you actually open the Bible. That's where the power's at. Right? That's, the, that's the hard soil and a snapshot that we get there. Let's move on to the second point, the rocky soil. The rocky soil. This is in verses 5 and 6 and then again in 16 and 17. Look back at your copy of God's word. Starting in verse 5, we read, Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Dropping down to verse 16. And, and these are the ones uh, sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Did you catch what that said at the end there? Persecution, tribulation, on account of the word? There's, it's not on account of us being jerks. We've got to ask ourselves, am I lovingly, yet boldly, proclaiming the word of God? Am I really sowing God's word here, or just spouting my own preferences? In the rocky soil, we see a slightly more optimistic picture than the hard soil, and that there seems to be a little bit of traction. There's a welcoming to the seed, to the word of God, but no real major substantive growth. You might say the early returns were looking good. Frankly, I think there's a major danger for us in the church with kids in this way, that we push, push, push them to pray some kind of a, a prayer of salvation younger and younger, or push them to get baptized at a really young age. We want them to both be saved and be baptized, but if we push them for early blossoms before there's actually a root of faith, we're doing more harm than good. But it's not just a kid thing, right? We see adults all the time will testify to God's grace, to his goodness for a while. 
They're interested while it's convenient, but when it starts to cost them something, they're out. Maybe they come to church for a bit until they can get their life back together. They experience a felt need. They see some solutions within the church, but their spiritual interest is for what they can get out of it, not a heart of faith in Jesus Christ. I'm sure you've seen that. And the tough part is, when we see a newfound spiritual hunger, a desire for God's word, it's right that we celebrate. It's right that we rejoice. But we've got to recognize it takes time for fruit to be born and to carry itself out and to see, is this really the fruit of faith or just, I can gain something here? This is why 1 Timothy 3, 6 would, would uh, caution us to be slow in putting people in positions of leadership. 1 Timothy 3 says, Pastors must not be new converts, largely for this reason right here. God, God anticipates this. But it's also important that we recognize in the life of a Christian that rooting out the rocks, the areas where we might be interested for what we can gain, and when it starts to cost us, it hurts, getting rid of those rocks is difficult work. It takes time. And it's not a solo sport. Christianity is a, a team sport. It's just to work together our sanctification, our growth, isn't merely something we do on our own. It's what we do with the body of Christ. We're not merely interested in each other's growth. We're invested in each other's growth. So Hebrews 12 would say, hey, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside sin and every weight that so easily entangles us. And let us together focus our eyes on Christ and run the race with perseverance. It takes all of us. That's a rocky soil. There's rocks in there that, that choke out the seed. And there's some early returns, but it burns out. Third, then we come to the thorny soil. The thorny soil. Pick up in verse 7. Look down at your copy of God's word. We read, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Drop down to verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So you see, there's sort of been this progression. You start with the hard pan soil where the, the, the seed doesn't even go down at all. Right? There's no traction. And then you go to the, to the rocky soil where it goes in a little bit. There's a little bit of fruit. It pops up, and then it burns out. And then to the thorny soil, there goes down. There appears to be more of a root. There's a little more foliage, a little more greenage. Things are popping up. There seems to be good things happening. But before any fruit can come, the thorns choke it out, and it proves to be unfruitful. You see that right at the end of verse 19? Look back there. It says it proves unfruitful. As if to say it looked like it might be fruitful for a little while. There was some spiritual greenery of sorts. And yet it didn't end up being fruit of the gospel. I think it's interesting that Jesus gives more here, more description here, than in any of the other sections. Why do you think that might be? Why would Jesus give more description on this section than on any of the others? It's because it's so easy for us to have a little bit of growth in the gospel, a little bit of appetite for God's word, things to start to pop up, and then it get choked out by other concerns, other things that seem more urgent. Notice, this is not people who are totally opposed to Jesus. They don't hate the gospel. They likely attend church somewhat regularly. They likely give a little bit when they can. But there are other things that choke out long-term fruit in their life. 
And in this parable, we get sort of in narrative form the clear teaching of the rest of the Bible, that the heart of faith receives the word and bears much fruit. So just consider a couple of these passages. James 1, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you, if you only hear the word and don't do it, if you don't bear fruit, you have deceived yourself and you are likely not a Christian. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test? He says, look, see, are you actually bearing fruit, or are the thorns here choking it out? Or you could look at John 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to those who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, stay in it. Not merely gain some knowledge, be there when it's convenient, but abide in my word. Or, or to state this whole thing a bit uh, more negatively, we could go to 1 John 2, where we read, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They started to sort of pop up. There was some spiritual greenery, and the thorns choked it out and said, this person may have looked like a believer, but they actually weren't. And this little section identifies several thorns of unbelief. What are these specific thorns of unbelief that choke out life? And the first one is the cares of the world. I wonder if you think about this. Has anybody ever tried to pull out a really thorny bush? Has anybody ever tried to do that? I'll tell you one thing you should never try to do. You should never try to do that without work gloves on. That's a really bad idea. And so it's sort of precarious as a pastor to get up and start to walk through the thorns that choke out belief. Like, I need to put some work gloves on here, and we need to recognize that this could be kind of stepping on some toes. This section could be a little bit difficult, but you wouldn't want me to be your pastor if I wouldn't walk you through what the Bible says, where thorns of unbelief can come in and can choke out the spiritual life, the vitality that's there. All right, the first one, you see it on the screen, is the cares of the world. What does this look like? Not bad things, but they're good things that keep me from abiding in God's word, like John 8 said. Some of these things are, are cares of the world that keep me from spending time in God's word alone. Maybe say, Justin, I've just got an incredibly stressful job. I can't, can't go to sleep without thinking about all the stresses. I wake up in the middle of the night, my mind racing. As soon as I get up, I gotta get going again. And I'm just not able to focus on his word. Or maybe it's just the, the pull of social media. It's like I don't mean to miss my time with God's word, but this just kind of pulls me in. I, I find myself scrolling Facebook or Instagram or, or something else. Like I, I'm just always there. The cares of the world are choking out my spiritual life. Maybe the kids are crazy. Like, man, if I could just have 15 minutes, five minutes, one minute of quiet, then I'd be able to. But this care of the world, a good thing, a great blessing is still choking out my spiritual life. And maybe it's just sleep. Just, Justin, I'm just tired. I, I just need to sleep a little bit more. And this care of the world, a, a good thing that we all need, is choking out my spiritual life. And I don't spend time in God's word at all, or very infrequently. But it's not just our time in God's word alone. No, it's, it's time with God's people in God's word that can also be choked out. And there's all sorts of cares of the world that choke out the life in that way as well. Thorns of unbelief. We might see that we have family that's out of town, and so we just always need to go and visit them. 
It's good to have family. It's good to go and see them, but it ought not keep us from being with God's people. It might be a housing project. I've got this other thing I need to work on. There's always things that need to be worked on, but is it a thorn of unbelief that's choking out your spiritual life? It's preventing you from being with God's people. Maybe it's being at the lake, being out at youth sporting events. You say, Justin, Sunday's my only day off. I work six days a week. I work 90 hours a week. I just need a day to put up my feet and be by myself. Friends, in Hebrews 10, God said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It's a key part of our spiritual growth. We either are going to receive his word and take it seriously and bear fruit, or we're going to tell God that we know a better way. And what's going to happen is that these thorns of unbelief will choke out our spiritual vitality. That's the first one, the cares of the world. The the second one that is identified by Jesus is the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. See, riches can deceive us into thinking that we don't need to invest part of every paycheck in God's kingdom. Riches tell us there's something else that it would be better to put that money towards, towards my retirement, towards the kids' college planning and the 529, towards saving up for this project. Riches are deceitful and they choke out our spiritual vitality. Maybe you say, Justin, that's not really me. It's not that I've got these other projects going on. It's just that we run in the red almost every single month and I, I would love to give, but I can't. We don't have the money. Friend, can I just... Can I just kind of open up a little bit personally here and say, man, the first two years of our marriage were really difficult, mainly because I love to spend money. And I found that cutting my expenses was remarkably hard. Like, oh, this is, this is difficult. How do I get, you know, how do I, how do I keep this in a good place here? So I understand that's a really difficult challenge. I want you to know that as a church, we're here to walk alongside you to help bear that burden. We've got some people that are gifted in financial counseling that would help you to be able to to live a life that honors God in the financial realm and to figure out how can we get to a better sustainable rhythm here so that the deceitfulness of riches need not choke out your spiritual vitality. But but the other side of it is this. Riches can be deceitful in choking out our life while we're giving. (laughs) Because it's not just that you don't give. It could choke it out while you're giving as well because it sort of functions, regular giving can function like a mask where I think that I'm not putting my trust in riches, but I actually still find more protection and more treasure there than I do in Christ. And I know it's hard to identify because I I never feel that way about myself until someone asks me to give a little bit more. I'm like, whoa, 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 why are you telling me to give more? Like, I'm already giving in these ways. I'm already giving to the church. I'm already supporting these missionaries and these other ministries. But the reality is to take Jesus' words seriously is to recognize that riches can be incredibly deceitful even as we are giving. Remember, the Pharisees were the ones regularly giving large amounts, and Jesus said, your heart has been blinded. The the thorns of unbelief are choking out your spiritual vitality here. Maybe one of the things that you ought to do coming out of the sermon, I mean, I don't want the deceitfulness of riches to rule and ruin my life. It'd be to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and there's three little verses there, uh, verses 17 through 19, that would be great for you to memorize. Here's what they say. They say, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. One of the thorns all over the Bible we see, Jesus talked more about money than he did heaven or hell because it's a tangible indicator of where our hearts are really at. It's one of those thorns. What's the third thorn he references? He says, a desire for other things. Desire for other things. It's, it's just general pursuit of a life of satisfaction apart from God. Sort of a junk drawer term for, for anything else. Again, it doesn't mean you're anti-God. It just means you're all in somewhere else. It means that maybe your, your career seems more urgent than cultivating a heart of dependence on Christ. It means that maybe the, the planning for the 4th of, Ju- 4th of July parade, it feels more real to you than preparing for an eternity with Jesus. You're going to the parade, you're not going to forget your lawn chair. Did that one time, not going back. That's a long time to stand up. Not going to forget water, did that one time, I was really thirsty. Not going to forget your sunscreen, you got sunburned one time. That's super real. You're not going to forget those things. But somehow preparing your soul to commune with God forever can feel less real than that. Desire for other things can be a thorn that choke out our life. Maybe it's finding a spouse that seems more important than finding somebody in the church that you can walk with and be discipled by and disciple someone else. Maybe it's your kid's success that seems more urgent than learning to forgive. Right? There's, there's all kinds of good desires out there that can seem more important than communing with God, than letting his word dwell richly in your heart. Here's the challenge this morning. You think about these thorns and the thorny soil where Jesus kind of spends the majority of his time? Uproot the thorns, guys. Rip them out. And after you've ripped them out, get the Roundup out and spray Roundup in that spot so they don't come back. And how do you do that? What does it look like to, to spray Roundup on them? It means to tell somebody else to walk with a believer, to grow through relationships, that yes, we have fun together, we have cookouts together, we have pool parties together, we we do all this kind of stuff, but we also work together to rip out the thorns in our hearts so there can be good soil that the gospel can grow in and we can become more like Jesus. So thus far, we've seen hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, but what's the good soil like? Isn't that the question? It's like, man, this kind of feels kind of negative here. I just keep hearing about bad soil all over the place. Isn't there some good soil? And how do I cultivate it? Let's talk about that. Fourth point, good soil. Look at verse eight. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Drop down to verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. These people are fruitful. They receive the word and they hold on to it. They embrace it. And as a result, they bear fruit. These are people that might get discouraged. They might get knocked down. They might get spiritually slowed down. They may know the darkness of spiritual depression, but they persist in humble dependency. I I don't really want to even be in God's word sometimes, but I confess a humble dependency on it and I cling to it. It's people who, like the song we're about to sing in a few minutes, would say, Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. 
Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. They look at the long run. They aren't governed by how they feel right now. But they say, I have a humble dependency on the word of God that I'm clinging to. Luke records this exact same parable, and he adds in a little nuance that I think is really helpful. Look at how he describes this. Uh, Luke 8, 15, he says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. You hear that N word? Patience. They bear fruit with patience. They don't demand it all right now. They know the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. Say, hey, we're not going to have it all together right now, but we're slowly but surely, one foot in front of the other, pursuing Christ cultivating a heart that's receptive to the gospel. That's what this good soil looks like. John 15, Jesus would say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. You see this this designation of the 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold fruit, the harvest? That was likely impossible in that day to have a harvest that was that rich. So what Jesus is doing, he's pointing out, this harvest is a result of God's direct work in your life. He's doing things in your heart that you didn't think possible. So yes, you are tilling up the hard soil. Yes, you're pulling the rocks out. Yes, you're working to uproot the thorns, but you're trusting that God will bring a harvest that goes way beyond what you can do on your own. This is to say that God's not interested in your abilities. He's interested in your availability. He's not looking at saying, oh man, I need to make sure I get that all-star on my team. Oh man, look at that skill set. We could really use that one at Parkside. Oh, look what she brings to the table. We really need that in Europe. He's saying, I'm looking for people that will be humbly dependent upon my word. He calls people, and after he's called them, then he equips them for the work that they're to do. He doesn't look down and say, who's already got all the gifts, and let me just do an external hire and bring in somebody who's at the top of the line. That's great news for us. You may not realize that, but you should. That is great news because that means I can come with my weakness and say, God, I don't have much to bring to the table, but I'm gonna give you me, the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, and I'm gonna let you do something with this. And I know that any fruit that comes, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, is all of you, it's not of me. The question for us, The difficulty for us is to actually listen and hear and believe this. You say, Justin, that just sounds like like a preacher point. Oh yeah, God can use you. What else should the pastor say? Is he gonna get up and say, God can't use you? Are you actually going to say, I hear God's word and I receive it and I believe that he can work this fruit in my life? This this, This parable, it's only 20 verses and in those 20 verses, eight times, you hear referencing to, references to listening and to hearing. It's almost every other verse. This parable of the sower shows up in Matthew, shows up in Mark, shows up in Luke. The repetition here of, of listening and hearing across all the Gospels and numerous times within this account drives home the point, will you listen to the word of God? Will you receive it? Will you hear it and trust that it will bear fruit in your life? You see, this parable is the the parable that sort of is the key to unlock our spiritual growth. Our growth requires our effort, but it's not dependent wholly on our ability. So the heart of faith receives God's word, and it bears much fruit because its confidence is not placed in yourself, but in God. 
That's to say this. Here's the good soil. The good soil is not defined by your theological knowledge. The good soil is not defined by your moral performance. The good soil is not defined by your life wisdom. You can be a theologically educated, morally upright person with lots of wisdom and not have a heart that's full of good soil to the gospel. The good soil is defined by humble dependence. This is the fruit. This is the harvest. It looks like surrendered repentance. What did John the Baptist say? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Good soil is marked by surrendered repentance. I don't merely say, God, I know I'm a bad person. I know I've sinned this week. No, we come to God and we name our sins in ways that are uncomfortable. I, I was greedy with my time towards that person. I just did not want to spend time with them, and I had it. I just wanted it for myself. God, in my heart, I committed adultery with that man or that woman this week. And I'm surrendering myself to you, and I'm repenting of that. Good soil is marked by gradually overcoming self-centeredness. It takes a long time to move away from seeing myself as the front and center point of every conversation I'm in. It takes an entire lifetime. But the good soil is marked by Philippians 2, 3 being worked out that I consider others more significant than myself. So it's a way of looking, a way of seeing that's just totally different, a way of hearing that's different. The good soil is marked by a radical transformation of what we value, of what we hold most dear to us. Titus 2 would say the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, that I value different things. That's what this humble heart, this heart of good soil towards the gospel looks like. And at the, the heart of the Bible, the nuclear core of Christianity is receiving the word became flesh, Jesus Christ. To receive the word is to receive Christ. To be clothed in him, not in yourself. And trying to jumpstart your Christian life any other way is like turning the keys in your ignition with no fuel in it. All you're going to get is click, 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 click until you don't even get click anymore. He's the fuel. He's the motivation. He's the gas that makes you go. And so receiving his perfect forgiveness allows me to extend forgiveness. His generous sharing of his blood allows me to be generous in sharing those things that are most precious to me. Receiving his love when I didn't deserve it allows me to radically love others when they don't deserve it. See, this good soil is cultivated by receiving who Christ is and allowing him to come in to change me from the inside out and then compel me into a different way of life altogether. The heart of faith receives the word receives Christ, it's changed by Christ, and it bears much fruit. So the question this morning is really quite simple. Will you receive the word? Will you allow it to bear much fruit in your life? Let's pray.